For the past several weeks, we've been engaged in this series that I call Living on Purpose. And the goal of this series has been to uncover God's stated purpose for our existence. And on this particular Lord's Day, that this Lord's Day that is commonly associated with the resurrection of Jesus because it's the first day of the week after the Passover. On this Lord's Day, I think it is important for us to acknowledge that we were designed for Christ's defense. Now that terminology might sound strange because why would Jesus need to be defended? I mean, Jesus is not weak. Jesus is not powerless. Why would Jesus need defended? Now, when I say we were designed for His defense, I'm not inferring that Jesus needs our help. I'm, I'm not deferring that, inferring, I should say, that Jesus is, is weak. Instead, I'm talking about the fact that we were assigned the task of defending Him like a witness in the courtroom who testifies on behalf of a defendant. Just before Jesus' ascension, he gave his disciples a new identity that inherently came with an assignment. If you open your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, I want you to notice what he says in verses 7 through 8. You see, Jesus is about to return to heaven. And he's got one last assignment to give to his disciples. Now, his disciples, they're expecting him to establish an earthly kingdom at this point. In fact, if you look at verse 6 of Acts chapter 1, their last recorded question for Jesus was, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And in response to their question, this is what Jesus said. Beginning in verse 7 of Acts chapter 1, Jesus said, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You see, the assignment that Jesus gave his disciples immediately before he ascended was to be a witness. Now, what, what is a witness? In the simplest of terms, and I mean really simple terms, a witness is someone who testifies on behalf of another in order to prove the veracity of a particular claim. A witness, a witness can be giving testimony that proves the veracity of the prosecution's accusation of guilt, or a witness could be giving testimony that proves and supports the defendant's claim of innocence. But how, but how does that apply to us? How does this understanding of a witness apply to you and I? I mean, if Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, what claim did he need his disciples to verify? Well, to understand this identity, let's start by looking at the original witnesses. You see, if you journey throughout the book of Acts, you'll see that the apostles served as witnesses of the resurrection. Let's just start in Acts chapter 1, and we're going to go through a few chapters and just make some observations very quick. So if you turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 1, and let's, let's notice how this witness language is used in this book. 
In Acts chapter 1, verse 21 and 22, it came time to replace Judas as an apostle, and Peter spoke up, and look what he said, Acts chapter 1, verse 21 and 22. One of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So of what did Peter say the apostles were witnesses? Of Jesus' resurrection. Turn over to the second chapter of Acts. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 31 and 32 in particular. As Peter presented the first gospel sermon there on the day of Pentecost, he quoted from Psalm chapter 16, and he said that David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So of what did Peter say they were witnesses? Of God raising Jesus up. Go over to the third chapter of Acts. Look at verse 14 and 15 of Acts chapter 3. Peter is addressing the crowd in the temple after he healed the lame man, and he told that crowd that they had denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer. In verse 15, he says that they had killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, he says. Of what did Peter say they were witnesses? Of the author of life being raised from the dead by God after being killed by the masses. One last passage I want you to notice is in chapter 5 of Acts. And here Peter addressed the Sanhedrin on behalf of all the apostles after they were arrested and ordered by the Sanhedrin to no longer speak about Jesus. In Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 29, Peter says we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. And God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Verse 32, and we are witnesses to these things. Of what did Peter say they were witnesses? Of Jesus being raised and exalted by God after being killed by order of the Sanhedrin. And I want you to think, why is it important that they served as witnesses to Christ's resurrection? Witnessing to the resurrection was essential for those first witnesses because salvation is contingent on the resurrection. Journey over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 with me for just a moment. Look at what Paul said about Christianity in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, particularly in verses 14 through 19. Paul says this, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised... Your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. You see, when you look at what Paul is saying, 
Paul is saying that if Jesus had not been raised from the dead, then, then faith is worthless. And salvation is impossible. And evangelism is pointless. And mankind is hopeless. In other words, if there is no resurrection, then there is no salvation. So the apostles served as witnesses confirming the reality of the resurrection, confirming what they saw, what they heard, what they witnessed. And as a result, their testimony served as a defense against those who wanted to disprove the resurrection. Now that's how the first witnesses defended Jesus. But what about us? The first witnesses, the apostles and the, the other first century disciples, they served as eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection. But we can't be eyewitnesses because we weren't there. But that doesn't mean we are not expected to be witnesses. You see, in a courtroom setting, in a legal proceeding, there are different types of witnesses. You can have eyewitnesses who testify about what they have seen or heard. You can also have expert witnesses who testify about what they know. But you can also have character witnesses. And character witnesses testify about what they have experienced in conjunction with the person on trial. You see, since we can't be eyewitnesses of the resurrection, I think we must serve as character witnesses of the resurrection. And the way we serve as character witnesses to the resurrection is by living in such a way that the reign of Christ is evident in our lives. In other words, we contribute to the defense of Jesus' resurrection by living like He's alive and in control. And Scripture identifies at least four ways that we can testify to Christ's reign. And that's what I want us to focus on for the rest of our time today. You see, we can serve as witnesses through our exhibition of hope. Here's the thing about hope. The absence of hope is indicative of unbelief, while the presence of hope is indicative of belief. Let me explain what I mean by taking you to Ephesians chapter 2 first. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 12, Paul said that those who are separated from Christ, who are alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and who are strangers to the covenants of the promise, he said they have no hope because they are without God in the world. In other words, those outside of Christ are hopeless. Meanwhile, if you jump to the book of 1 Peter, you'll notice in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, that, that Peter indicates that as disciples, we are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And as a result, we should be so filled with hope that it is externally evident. At least that's the implication of his instructions a couple of chapters later in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. There, Peter says that we should always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks us for a reason for the hope that is in us. You see, when you become a Christian, you transitioned from a state of hopelessness to a state of hopefulness. And this transition should be so visible that it causes people to ask you 
about its source. But what, what does hope look like? According to the author of Hebrews, it looks like a sure and steadfast anchor. But why, why is hope compared to an anchor? An anchor is designed to hold a movable object in place by attaching itself to an immovable object. It exists for the sole purpose of preventing drift by securing a vessel to an immovable substance. So, for example, you have sand anchors, which secure a vessel to the ocean floor by burying themselves in the sand. And you have reef anchors, like the one pictured on the screen, reef anchors which secure a vessel to a large object, such as a rock, by hooking onto it. Regardless of the means of attachment, anchors are intended to secure a vessel to something that is unlikely to move. And that's the metaphor God chose to use for hope in the Bible. And here's why. Hope functions like an anchor because it attaches us to, to one who is our source of confidence. Consider Jeremiah's lament in Lamentations chapter 3. Laramiah, excuse me, <laughs> Jeremiah bemoans all of the bad things that have happened to him. He goes so far as to say in Lamentations chapter 3 and verse 17 that he had forgotten what happiness is. But, but then he stopped complaining. He stopped complaining when he remembered God's character. If you will open up to Lamentations chapter 3, look at what he says in verses 21 through 24. He says, but this I call to mind. After spending so much time complaining and lamenting his situation, he calls this to mind and as a result has hope. But this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. In other words, Jeremiah possessed hope despite all of his hardships because the one to which he was anchored is loving and merciful and faithful. His hope was in the one who never changed. Now, consider for a moment how this applies to the resurrection. Paul made it abundantly clear that our hope is anchored to the resurrection because if you go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you'll see in verse 20 through 22 that Paul indicated when Jesus was raised from the dead, he made it possible for everyone to be raised from the dead. Thus, the source of our hope is the resurrection of Jesus. And our, our failure to exude this hope is ultimately a failure to be a witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's why throughout the New Testament, the presence of hope is a condition of salvation. We don't think of it that way, but, but notice what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 6. The author, the author of Hebrews says, we are God's house if. Now that's a if. If is a preposition that indicates some sort of condition. We are God's house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Now look at Colossians chapter 1, particularly verse 21 through 23. In Colossians chapter 1 verses 21 through 23, Paul says that Jesus has now reconciled you 
in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him, if, there's that conditional language again, if you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. See, both of these passages, they indicate that our salvation is linked to hope. And that means we should approach each day holding fast the confession of our hope without wavering, as Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 23 says. You see, we serve as a witness through our exhibition of hope, through our presentation of hope. Hope is a characteristic that we inherit when we inherit salvation. And our hope should be so evident, as Peter said, that people feel it necessary to ask us what its source is. So one way you serve as a witness is through your exhibition of hope. But another way you serve as a witness is through your demonstration of love. Think about Jesus and how after demonstrating His love for the disciples by washing their feet, He said these words in John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35. He said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. In his last opportunity to teach his disciples, Jesus wanted them to see and to hear the importance of love. Based on Jesus' words in this passage in John chapter 13, verses 34 through 35, there are three important implications about love that must not be overlooked. First, love is non-negotiable. Love is non-negotiable because Jesus specifically presented this statement as a command. He did not say a new suggestion I give to you or a new option I give to you or, or a new possibility I give to you. He said a new commandment I give to you. In fact, commandment terminology is linked to the phrase love one another at least five more times in the New Testament. And the reason love is so important is because my relationship with God is contingent on my relationship with other people. John would later write in 1 John chapter 4, verse 20 and 21, that he who loves God must love his brother also. The reason you cannot hate people and love God is because loving one another is a direct outgrowth of our love for God. John said in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7 that love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Therefore, in verse 11 of 1 John 4, we ought to love one another since God loved us. You see, love is a non-negotiable. It's a command. It's an expectation. And it's a reflection of God's love for you and your love for Him. Another important implication of Jesus' statement here in John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35, is that loving others serves as irrefutable evidence of our discipleship. 
In reference to loving one another, Jesus said, By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Don't overlook the importance of that statement. When it came time to select the defining attribute of his disciples, Jesus didn't choose service. Jesus didn't choose faith or truth or holiness or humility. All of those are essential characteristics. All of those are worthy and expected characteristics. But when Jesus chose the defining attribute of a disciple, he chose love. Why? Because love manifested toward those who are undeserving of love has the power to heap burning coals on their head, as Paul said in Romans chapter 12 and verse 20. Now, what does that idiom mean? Scholars don't agree on the exact meaning, but the most compelling suggestion references the fact that when enemies stormed a city, the inhabitants of the city defended the wall by dropping things on the heads of the invaders. And something they would drop on those invaders' heads was burning coals. Based on this practice, Paul's words mean that the best defense against evil is doing good. That's why Paul followed this idiom with the instruction to not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. To heap burning coals on someone's head was a defense mechanism. And our greatest defense against evil is doing good. To not be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. See, the point is that we should love at all times because love is the one trait that will never fail, as Paul would point out in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and verse 8. And since love will never fail, love is the one trait that will show the world that we are associated with Christ. But the only way for our love to accomplish this is if it possesses a different standard. And that's the third implication of Jesus' new commandment in John chapter 13. Loving others is based on a higher standard. When Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, it's important for us to note that this is not the first time that Jesus instructed his disciples to love each other. Back in Mark chapter 12, verse 30 and 31, a lawyer asked Jesus what the most important command in the Mosaic Law was, and Jesus answered with the instructions to love God and love people. So when Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, he wasn't presenting a new command. No, that, that command had been in place for a while. What he was presenting was an entirely new standard on which the command is based. So when you look at John chapter 13 and verse 34 and 35, what you see is that Jesus instructed us to love others the way that he loved us. When it comes to love, he did not settle for a golden rule standard. He didn't settle for do unto others as you would have them do unto you or love one another as you would have them love you. Instead, he instituted what one preacher called the platinum rule which effectively says, do unto others as I have done to, unto you, or 
love each other the way that I have loved you. See, the golden rule standard of loving others the way that we want to be loved is no longer a high enough standard for love. The standard of Jesus, the the standard of the new commandment is that we love other people the way that Jesus loved us. And if you really think about it, what Jesus did on the cross is he loved us eternally and he loved us mercifully and he loved us unconditionally and he loved us sacrificially. And when we love like that, it's noticeable. So not only can we serve as a witness for Jesus by, the, by our exhibition of hope, but by our demonstration of love. And a third way we can serve as a witness is through our preservation of unity. We can serve as a witness through our preservation of unity. Unity is extraordinarily powerful. You remember what happened at the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11? After the flood, people united together around the goal of constructing a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. Once they started construction, we're told that the Lord came down to see what they were doing. And upon seeing their united effort, this is what he said in Genesis chapter 11 and verse 6. He said, they are one people. They have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. Nothing that they propose to do will be impossible for them. See, God acknowledged the power of unity here. God admitted that their unity empowered them to do the impossible. Now, as you may be aware, he dispersed them by confusing their language. But the reason he dispersed them was not because they were uh, unified, but because their ultimate goal was arrogant. Their ultimate goal was to make a name for themselves instead of holding up the name of God. So it's no surprise when we get to the New Testament, that the biblical authors spend a great deal of time promoting unity. Because as the Tower of Babel episode shows us, and as as God's own comments at the Tower of Babel demonstrate, unity is powerful. So we get to the New Testament. And if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10, you'll see that Paul instructed the church in Corinth to be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. When Paul penned those words, the church in Corinth was divided based on individual allegiances to different Christian leaders, such as Paul and Apollos and Peter. And Paul's instruction to the Corinthians to be united in the same mind was a call for them to eliminate the divisions that were causing quarreling among them. In other words, he was calling for them to be unified, have the same mind. That's unity. You can skip over to Philippians chapter 4 and verse 2 where Paul implored, implored two women in that congregation, Euodia and Syntyche, to be of the same mind in the Lord. These two women were divided over an unspecified issue that caused some serious disagreement. 
The problem was so serious that Paul instructed the entire congregation in Philippi to help these women in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 3. And it was so serious that he wrote to the whole congregation about being of the same mind and possessing the same love back in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 2. Once again, Paul's same mind instruction was a call for unity amidst a situation where disunity reigned. As we've already mentioned, unity is powerful. That's why it was emphasized so much in the New Testament church. And unity communicates to the world something about its source. Imagine. Imagine that you have 100 pianos and you tuned all of those pianos using the same tuning fork. Even though those pianos were tuned separately, they would all be tuned to each other because they use the same source for their tuning. And when those pianos were played, the unity of their sound would be evidence that something brought them together. You see, unity is important when it comes to the people of God. Because unity is the trait that Jesus indicated would declare His deity. Look at the prayer Jesus offered shortly before His arrest in John chapter 17, verse 20 through 21. He said, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. In this passage, Jesus prayed for his disciples to be in us and to all be one. That prayer for disciples to all be one is a prayer for unity between brothers and sisters in Christ. And that prayer for disciples to be in us is a prayer for unity between believers and God. So in one of his final recorded prayers before he died, Jesus prayed for believers to be unified with each other and with God. Why did he pray for these two things? Well, that's evident when you look at the last statement in verse 21 of John chapter 17. You see, Jesus prayed for unity on those two fronts so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Unity between disciples and unity with God, apparently they serve as evidence for the deity of Christ. Love may be the trait that will declare to the world that we are followers of Jesus. But unity is the trait that will declare to the world that Jesus is the Christ. That's why unity is so important. We are also witnesses to Jesus. We are also defenders of Jesus by our persistence and our preservation of unity. But there's one more thing we need to mention today. Not only do we serve as witnesses through our exhibition of hope, and our demonstration of love, and our preservation of unity, but we also serve as witnesses through our possession of integrity. 
What is integrity? Integrity is defined as an adherence to moral and ethical principles. It's also defined as a state of being whole, entire, or undiminished. Maybe the best definition of integrity you've heard before is that integrity is doing the right thing when no one is watching. And this character quality also contributes to our role as witnesses. It's in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11 at the conclusion of a, of a powerful section regarding our identity. Peter said, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter's statement, what Peter's saying is that we are expected to be such people of integrity that our good deeds deflect accusations of wrongdoing and they simultaneously reflect God's glory. But here's the thing about integrity. Integrity really shows up when no one is in the audience. Your integrity is tested the most when there's nobody to see what you're doing. And in those moments, the only way our, our, our integrity will remain and have this witnessing effect is if it meets two criteria. First, it has to be consistent. Our conduct, our character has to be consistent. And in order for our conduct to be honorable, in order for us to have the integrity, in order for, for all of this to testify to Christ's reign, it can have no gaps. What I mean is that our behavior must be consistent day in and day out. Think about Joseph. Joseph showed that he possessed integrity when he rejected the advances of Potiphar's wife and said this in Genesis 39 verse 9, How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? David did the same thing. David showed that he possessed integrity when he refused to, ex to attack Saul in the, in, the, in the deep, dark recesses of a cave and said this instead. 1 Samuel chapter 24 and verse 6. The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. When you look at the examples of Joseph and David, what you see are men who no matter what the circumstances or the situation is, they're prioritizing God's will. And that prioritization remains the same regardless of who's present, regardless of whether or not anybody knows, regardless of whether or not anybody sees. See, in order to possess integrity, we cannot limit our walk with God to Sundays and Wednesdays, to those times when we assemble to those times when we're in the presence of other Christians. Our integrity is cultivated throughout the other days of the week when no Christians are around to hold us accountable. So in order for our integrity to testify to the Lord's reign, it has to be consistent. But it also has to possess a different value system. See, one's conduct is directly related to his or her value system. 
And if our conduct is going to testify to Christ, then it must operate on the same value system as Christ. That's the whole point of the Beatitudes. Being poor in spirit, mourning, being meek, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, being merciful, being pure in heart, being a peacemaker. Those are not traits valued in the kingdoms of men, but they are valued in the kingdom of heaven. And so in order for our conduct to be honorable, in order for us to have integrity to the degree that it deflects accusations and reflects Christ, we must lay up treasures in heaven instead of on earth, as Jesus instructed us in Matthew chapter 6. And we must set our minds on things that are above rather than things that are on the earth, as Paul instructed us in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 2. And that's because Christ-like integrity is based on a different value system. And when we possess that different value system, our integrity will shine and it will serve as a witness for Christ. Whether you're talking about hope or love or unity or integrity, we're talking about our attributes that will testify to Christ's reign. came across a story about a, a, a renowned 19th century artist named Gustav Dore. He lost his passport while traveling in Europe, and when he came to a border crossing, he explained his predicament to the guards that were posted there. He gave them his name, and he hoped he would be recognized and allowed to pass because of his fame. But the guard said, that several people have attempted to cross the border by claiming to be persons that they were not. And even though Dore insisted that he was the man he claimed to be, the official said he would give him a test to prove his identity. He handed him a pencil and a sheet of paper and he told the famed artist to sketch several peasants that were standing nearby. And Dory did it so quickly and so skillfully that the guard was convinced he was indeed who he claimed to be, and he let him through. Essentially, his work confirmed his word. What about you? Has your work, has the way you've lived your life, confirmed the word of the one who rose from the dead? What I'm asking is how the way you have lived under the reign of Christ, has it confirmed the truth of his resurrection? Has your exhibition of hope, your demonstration of love, your preservation of unity and your possession of integrity contributed, contributed to defending the veracity of his victory over death? Have you successfully served as a witness for Christ? Because if not, then you may not be living on purpose because you were designed for His defense. Today I encourage you to conduct a little self-evaluation and, and see whether or not your life is reflecting the resurrection. Are you living as one whose life demonstrates that Christ is alive and that He is in control? If not, what needs to change?
Maybe you need to make the decision to become a child of God. Make that decision to start living truly on purpose. We can make arrangements for you. We've done it already. Please reach out to one of the ministers or one of the elders and let us know if you want to make that decision. We'll gladly assist you. Maybe there's some correction in your life that needs to be made. Maybe you've been living hopelessly when you should be living hopefully. Maybe you haven't loved people according to the standard that Scripture calls you to. Maybe you haven't contributed to unity in the brotherhood. Maybe you haven't been that person of integrity. You haven't been consistently living by the will of God every day. And you need to change. We're here to help with that as well. Feel free to reach out to one of the elders, one of the ministers. We'll gladly pray with you, study with you. And as a congregation, we will gladly support you and help you. We just want all of us to live on purpose. And that's what God wants too.